Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that always obeys the rule of six, especially when it comes to biscuits. I'm Tin and Dooyeb, and in Britain, it is a fact that no one is above the law, but it seems the government have sunk so far past rock bottom that they're now somehow beneath it and hoping to rive past unnoticed. On the one hand, the coronavirus regulations have changed now to the rule of six, a sort of title that sounds like a US teen film about an ancient fraternity pact that holds no power because its creators change their mind every two minutes to however it benefited them. According to documentation released 15 minutes before the policy was applied, because hey, it's just easier to tell certain family members or friends that you don't want to see them till next spring if you don't have time to think about it, you may not gather in a group of more than six people, apart from for work, school, charitable events, weddings, funerals, playgroups, if several of you are wearing camouflage so no one can tell how many of you there are, um, if you all shout, I don't know these people very loudly throughout the time you're together, or if you just daydream when you're with these other people and can testify that you're on another planet at the time. You can also go to big gatherings as a group of six, but mingling is illegal. A motion that had it come in decades ago could have saved me having to listen to a lot of unwanted chat about mortgages, other people's children or jokes I should definitely use in my sets. The word mingling had never been used in English legal history before, probably because the idea of mixing with other groups sounds like Dante's eighth circle of hell for most of the Conservatives. It goes without saying that there is a special exception for grouse hunting, uh, which can still be done in groups of 30 because the government likes to get everyone involved in foul play. Of course, this change in coronavirus measures is necessary because after weeks of the government telling everyone to get back to work, COVID-19 said, OK, I will, and stepped up to a productivity rate that Germany would be jealous of. Evidence suggests that schemes such as Eat Out to Help Out have driven the new spike in infections, but to be fair to the Chancellor and animated nosebag Rishi Sunak, he never explicitly said just what we'd be helping out by doing it. Yes, we're at a stage with this bunch where I wouldn't be surprised if they're out to specifically aid the virus simply because it was related to human pothole Michael Gove. But evidence means nothing in this world, and so, of course, instead, it's the young people's fault for doing exactly what the government have encouraged them to. I mean, what were they thinking? We all know young people are rebellious. If they were properly responsible, they'd have been avoiding badly paid work and deals at Nando's to instead be scrawling ACAB on bridges and getting put in prison for life by aggressive new home office policies. Ugh, silly young people. 
With affordable homes, no proper work, expensive tuition fees and basically nothing on the planet going for them, it is typical that when the Conservatives hear the cry to give the young people something to go on, they've opted for blame and I hope that by feeling guilty for killing their grandparents, they might stop wanging on about having their futures destroyed. You killed the planet, yes, but who pulled during rag week and now great auntie Sue is dead, hmm? One Conservative health minister, Lord Bethel, or what happens if you emboss a crow, said students shouldn't pass coronavirus on in their bedrooms by having sex in Freshers' Week. So it's clear that if you're a student, the only way you'll be safe is by shagging outside or in a hall, or toilets. I mean, basically, take the Conservatives' advice and just act prime ministerial for the country. While it's up to all of us to obey the law, primarily because it will take a countrywide effort to counteract the Prime Minister, aka dropped Coles Law on a warm day, Boris Johnson, running around hand-delivering it like the horseman pestilence if he rode around on a pool inflatable. On the other hand, see, I didn't forget it, the government have decided it's just fine for them to break international law because as the Northern Ireland Secretary and whatever happened to Hands My Hedgehog, Brandon Lewis, told the Commons, it's only in a specific and limited way. While the much-done joke is on how you might break the law in such a way, you know, is it okay to murder if it's only a handful of people and you only did it with the same blunt spork, really everything the government does is in a specific and limited way, isn't it? I mean, promising to build 40 new hospitals, for example, so it's actually only six hospitals and only bits of them, prioritising education so that most schools are still completely neglected, or, as it turns out, getting Brexit done. You see, the Internal Market Bill, which no, isn't the name of someone who sells organs illegally, though considering what might happen to the country, that will be one of the most profitable industries, is necessary because the withdrawal agreement that Johnson insisted was oven-ready, good, great, wonderful, campaigned for the election entirely on the basis of, and would definitely mean Brexit would never have to be uttered again, was actually written too quickly for all the details to be sorted out. It is nice to finally hear some Brexiteers admit they didn't know what they were voting for, but it does lessen the impact somewhat when the person who forced the Prime Minister to agree to something he didn't understand was the Prime Minister. While in the Commons opening the debate before the vote on moving the internal market bill to the second stage, Johnson announced that no British PM, no government, no parliament could ever accept such an imposition. Even though that is exactly what happened and he did it. I mean, either he's finally admitting that he, in every sense, is no Prime Minister, he's hoping that no one in the world knows how to look things up online or use their memory, or he's suffering from a very severe disassociative disorder. I'm concerned that we'll find out in the next few weeks that Johnson's been attending a fight club coerced by his pal Tyler, and of course Johnson would tell us all about it. Aside from admitting that he'd never read the withdrawal agreement he so adored last year, Johnson insisted this new bill would prevent the EU from blockading food in our own country and putting tariffs in our own land, something that we'd need an insurance policy for. I can't imagine Johnson's ever had an insurance policy for anything as he'd never accept it was his responsibility and has almost certainly preferred to just move house rather than claim for a burglary or just leave the burning wreckage of a car in the middle lane pointing who on earth did that at it while jumping into a cab. Former Labour leader, now Energy Secretary and always sandwich enemy, Ed Miliband, did the sort of response in the Commons that you wish he'd done a bit more of back in 2010-14 to instead of just pushing racist mugs. He pointed out that the bill doesn't actually prevent any of the things Johnson just mentioned and the PM couldn't disagree but instead looked like he was slowly deflating and hoping someone would scoop him up, pop him in a bucket and show him pictures of old wars until he felt better. That this bill overrides international treaty obligations has already caused concern not just from the EU, but also representatives of many other countries that we might actually want trade deals with. Though maybe that is what was meant by the idea of global Britain. I mean, infamy still means everyone talks about you, right? 
A government lawyer resigned last week saying that he'd been put in an intolerable position and I don't think he just meant having to sit near what if the Muppets were bad and Attorney General Suella Braverman, whose legal training appears to amass to having once been on a tennis court. Former Prime Minister's old bedsheet John Major and statue to ward everyone away Tony Blair made a joint statement calling the government shameful and embarrassing, which packs quite a punch from someone who had an affair with the only MP who got defeated by egging Edwina Curry and the other who bombed Iraq based on a fever dream. In fact, all former living Prime Ministers, if you can count Theresa May as still alive, have condemned the government's decision to wheel back on their own agreement, as have arch-Brexiteers such as What If Roy Chubby Brown Opened the Ark of the Covenant, Michael Howard, and former Attorney General and entirely neck Geoffrey Cox. All of them say that Boris is damaging the UK's reputation, which coming from them does feel a bit like trashing everything at a house party and then being upset that someone else went too far by taking a piss in the pot plant. Though to be fair, the internal market bill is a bit more like setting fire to the party and then nicking the pot plant for your friends who gave you extra cash to do it. Johnson told MPs over a Zoom call that the bill needed their overwhelming support and it was vital to prevent a foreign or international body from having the power to break up our country. As we all know, that's his job and he'll be gutted if he doesn't get to strike that off his tick list alongside building a bridge to the moon and having at least one of his offspring in every square mile. But of course, he's had loads of backing from MPs like Rorschach Test to Theresa Villiers, who insisted that countries break international law on a routine basis, so this is no biggie. And maybe this is just the plan all along, that by violating the rules will end up on our own foreign office trade sanctions list and the government will be able to explain the food shortages by saying well we can't export to ourselves because we're terrible people while at the same time selling arms around the UK. Even the Justice Secretary and number block, Robert Buckland, isn't sure if he'd resign unless it was only a breach of the law that he'd find unacceptable, putting into question his time as a barrister in criminal law, where I'm now certainly defend clients by going, but your honour, they didn't break into my house so I'm really not bothered. Of course, the bill did pass through to the second stage, which is partly due to the Tories always escaping the law up until now, so why not just get the power rush of doing it again, but bigger? I'm amazed Michael Gove didn't celebrate by snorting a line of cocaine off the Speaker's dick. But it was possibly also because MBs were supposedly threatened that they'd be expelled out of the party if they voted against it. You know, like last time they did that when they were told to vote for the agreement this bill is now counteracting. There is an amendment vote next Monday, but if that went through, it would create a statutory basis for ministers to break the law, meaning that it would be legal for them to be illegal, providing exactly the sort of batshit logic Johnson thrives on. So, to summarise, to make up for a bill that was supposedly rushed through, the internal market bill is being fast-tracked through Parliament, because as we all know, two wrongs make a far right. So, what are we all meant to think of the law now that the government have put it on the same standing as expiration dates on food? Yeah, well, it smells fine to me, so I'll still eat it. If everyone's taking the example from Johnson and Pals, it's no wonder there's scepticism about the new COVID regulations. Is anyone worried by the threat of what Boris Johnson has announced as COVID marshals? A job title that sounds like it's the sort of thing you give a child to do to stop them getting in the way. Yes, you wear this hat and stand there and let me know if you see any germs charging over the horizon. And I'll come and pick you up in an hour. Is this why no one's seen crayon drawing of Peter Griffin, Mark Francois, anywhere? He's been missing roughly around the same time that there was that totally unrelated, totally unrelated bit of news about an unnamed Conservative MP in his 50s who was accused of rape. He's even been replaced as chair of the European Research Group, which I assume happened with his consent. That would be ironic if it didn't, for, you know, totally unrelated reasons. I reckon it's because Mark Francois has been training up to become a Covid marshal, actually, and it'll be mere days before we see him stomping around with a big shiny badge, a sombrero and a bright green water pistol shouting stop you've got too many friends at people something that he'd never be accused of himself 
COVID marshals are just one part of the plan, with the NHS Track and Trace app out on September the 24th, so slightly too late for Horsebird and Dido Harding to get all 2,500 people who attended Doncaster races just before the Rule of Six was announced. Still, I'm sure the odds are low that anything that makes her money transmits the virus, as most people that attend those things are so posh they probably wouldn't share their air anyway. With the Track and Trace app, there will also be mass testing for 10 million people a day in the government's landmark Operation Moonshot scheme, so-called because any possibility it will work is lunacy and will no doubt happen a handful of times and then never again, causing many to believe it was a hoax in the first place. The scheme will cost £100 billion, just less than the entire annual budget for the NHS, but that's OK because I'm sure the government will spend that money wisely by giving it all to someone who once passed their driving test and has seen a cotton bud before, so will totally be qualified to handle it. The tech for this doesn't actually exist yet, but who can be angry about a government willing to dream about possibility when there's every chance this kit will arrive from a mysterious time traveller from the future at the same time they'll bring the friction-free border checking for Northern Ireland? Any day now, I'm sure. Yeah, as if the Doctor will ever arrive with the current levels of NHS understaffing. There are many complaints that the nationwide testing system is failing, with many applying for tests and being told their closest centre is hundreds of miles away, but I think that does mean you can get a check for your eyesight at the same time. Health Secretary and upside-down scarab beetle for a face, Matt Hancock, who previously told everyone to get a test if they had any doubt about their symptoms, has now blamed the British public for having too many tests, because, you know, really we should be saving them for a special occasion or Christmas or something. Hancock insisted that we still have the largest testing system imaginable, but that is from someone who couldn't imagine people would go and get tests when he told them to. I'm also betting that he looks at Theresa Villiers and can only see Theresa Villiers instead of two crows boning. Justice Minister Kit Malthouse, aka Shit Melthouse, thinks people should snitch on their neighbours if they have gatherings of over six people. But I think if he doesn't want to be accused of double standards, we need a level playing field here. Either us plebs can protest that having a massive rave in the park is integral to Britain's reputation, or that, you know, everyone does it so it's no big deal, or Kit and the government need to be really chill when every single one of the UK's neighbours shops us in for being global crims. Maybe all of us will get away with everything if we just say it's an exemption, as this is clearly the country's funeral. In other news, Tupperware with a face and Trade Secretary Liz Truss announced that the UK have secured a trade deal with Japan worth £15.2 billion, though she didn't mention that 80% of that amount will likely go to Japan, so it's a bit like announcing that you and a friend raised 200 quid for your car boot sale when your pal sold £190 worth of stuff and you found a tenner someone had dropped on the floor. What it does mean, though, is that as a nation, we can sell more Stilton cheese to Japan, a country where barely anyone eats cheese. I look forward to Truss's next major announcement about selling freezers to Greenland. It's a good thing, though, to show that we might actually get some trade post-Brexit, and if it does amount to lots of those tiny Kit Kats I'm in. However, considering everything else that this government have done so far, there's a high chance they'll just say that it was rushed through, have no idea who wrote the deal, and now need to change it to allow Japanese boats to hunt people from Wales. Conservatives voted down a Labour amendment to the fire safety bill that would have ensured all the recommendations from the first stage of the Grenfell inquiry were put into place. Housing Secretary, because everything he does leaves you feeling flat, Robert Jenrick, has insisted that it would be irresponsible putting the measures in place till they've had a consultation with social housing residents and the housing industry. Because chances are high that once Richard Desmond fills that survey for just him in, Jenrick will realise it's cheaper for his pal if they don't bother with any of them and all future developments are made entirely out of firelighters. The organisers of Festival UK 2022, aka the Festival of Brexit, have started their applications for commissions process, insisting the event will bring people together. And it already is, to be fair, with most people uniting to say it sounds shit and a massive waste of £120 million of public money. 
Rumpty Magic One, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is self-isolating after one of his family members had COVID symptoms, proving even his relatives are more in touch with current trends than he is. I bet somehow he'll catch smallpox instead. Labour leader and paintbrush Keir Starmer is also self-isolating for similar reasons, though he can't say for sure if his family member has COVID or not and won't know until there's an inquiry. Starmer has received praise this week for insisting the government get on with Brexit, supposedly refusing to fall into the elephant trap set by the Conservatives so they could label Labour a Remain party. I suppose when you've already fallen into that elephant trap for most of the previous year, you're probably keen not to do it all over again and best just to ignore all possible elephants in any room you're in until the next election. And lastly, UKIP has yet another new leader, well, a temporary one, that of Statler and Waldorf's love child, Neil Hamilton, because either it's his turn now or he's the only one left in the party. No one's sure. Either way, I bet he received his new appointment under the table in a lovely brown envelope. What say you, Parpol Brews? Um, I am recording this in the middle of the internal market bill debate. Uh, it's, it's going on forever. It's quite uh, bonkers and boring at the same time. And there is a chance that if the beginning of this show, there's a part of it that sounds a bit different. It sounds quite tired, possibly even full of whiskey. Uh, that's because I've had to quickly rewrite uh, to catch up with the news. Oh, it's like last September all over again. But if there was like a pandemic in Groundhog Day and the Groundhog had died. Um, I hope you've all safely chosen which family members or friends are your favourites and can have access to your presence over others. Um, of course, if you're in some of the areas that have been on full lockdown for the last month or so, you are way ahead of the game here. You probably already have your top other five people to see with everyone else confined to only getting to see you at the pub, work, cinema, school or holiday. It's odd, isn't it? Because obviously, while on one hand, uh, the COVID infections rising is terrible, scary, absolutely the worst. But on the other, it could really save us from all those endless, unnecessary winter socialising evenings. You know where people always say, oh, but we must see you before Christmas, uh, as though they know something you don't about what might happen to you in the new year. Um, you know, why do you have to see me now? I haven't seen you in like two years. No one, no one really wants to see each other. I mean, look, hey, I did not love lockdown by any means, but I've also always dreamed about hibernating in the winter, only to emerge in the spring like a disgruntled bear. And um, I am fully prepared for the challenge of eating so much in the lead up that my body could survive on its fat storage alone. Could this be the first ever allowed human hibernation period? Hey, maybe we'll all get into it and every winter the world will just fall quiet till the end of March. Well, you know, the wintry bits would. Meanwhile, all the summery places could get on with shit and then we'll tag out with them once it's too nippy for them to go out without a jacket. Who's in? Yes, that's right. All of us for months. We don't really have a choice. Um, I do hope that's not the case. And I hope that you are doing OK with the prospect of everything not being OK all over again. Um, I found that various periods away from the Internet have really helped me. Online seems to become even more than usual, a just sort of colourful argumentative version of the guy with the end is nigh written on his sandwich board. Only it's not for the reasons he think it will happen because only an idiot who believes the MSN would think that. But yeah, uh, generally it's incredible seeing all the screaming online about someone doing a dance they didn't like because it wasn't Morris dancing with Nazi flags or something. But that's still so at odds with when you walk outside and see most people are just staring into the void, wishing their kids didn't want to go on the swings for quite such a long time. I've been dangerously reading about all the QAnon conspiracy stuff in the US and people who are so certain that a secret cabal are killing their children that if Joe Biden gets in in November, they'll kill themselves and their children to avoid the horrors that may follow. Which is not really a great way to put forward your campaign to save the children, but also just gives me the impression that we really are at the tipping point for quite a lot of people. And then I remember to go outside and there's just someone getting on with trying not to walk in dog poo or whatever. It's very calming. I definitely recommend the outside if you can. And definitely if we go back into lockdown, I've decided I'm going to dodge the socials a little bit more and I'll instead uh, 
you know, leave my front door. And if I can't, screaming in the shower uh, instead or something more productive like that, perhaps. Um, anyway, that's my brain diarrhea for this week. And I hope you skip past it for your sake or used it as the bit of the podcast where you walk past a particularly noisy road or bleating sheep. Missed it entirely. Don't rewind. It's not worth it. Um, thank you for listening now. And thanks for all the lovely messages, tweets and all those sorts of things about the 200th episode last week. It's so nice to know that so many of you still enjoy this show and aren't just listening out of self-hatred. Uh, thank you also to Helen, James and somebody for the Kofi donations, uh, which is so very appreciated. And of course, should you wish to make me financially dependent on this show so that I can never, ever give it up, then please lob a few pounds to the Kofi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, uh, join the Patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or donate at the ACAST supporter button for this show. Uh, no points of note or admin this week, though I'd like to give a shout out to Natalie at the Royal Free Hospital and the ophthalmology team there, um, as while I was getting a pic taken of my stupid diabetic eyes, uh, um, Natalie kindly popped her head around the divider screen to say she'd listen back to every episode of this show, uh, which very much made my day. So thanks, Natalie, for that. Um, I did then have to go have a bit of laser eye surgery, which was the opposite of fun. And once again, I still don't have laser eyes. So what a waste. What an absolute waste. Um, of course, if you want to tell me you like the show, uh, you don't need to train in sort of ophthalmology expertise. That's quite a long way to do it. And that's also assuming that by the time you finish uh, you know, all that studying, this podcast will still be going. If anything, it's probably just better to uh, tweet about the show, tell other people that you know that might like it, and uh, give us a review on one of them podcast apps. Certainly easier, and you don't have to take pictures of my stupid diabetic eyes. Right, on this week's show, I am speaking to Professor Sheena Crookshank, an immunologist, and I ask her for actual info all about the COVIDs rather than whatever we can glean from Chris Whitty's terrified haunted child face as the Prime Minister stands behind him insisting you can't catch it in members clubs or something. Plus, a little bit all about uh, the rule of six and exactly what it entails. Um, and I don't even really do any jokes about it being a times table thing or how it sounds like the joy of sex. None of those. You can make all those ones yourself. You do it yourself. Go on. That's filthy. It's horrible. Why would you make that joke? You disgust me. It must be galling for the COVID-19 virus to know that no matter how hard it tries, it'll never spread quicker than disinformation in today's day and age. Whether that's from politicians, articles that leave most of the important bits out, or just that relative of yours who's both certain that the earth is flat because we're all being lied to, but also you should definitely trust a YouTube video of someone you've never heard of sitting in their mum's basement shouting about brain tablets. Combined with coronavirus being a brand new hot for 2020 illness, which clever science folk are still in the midst of understanding, it means that it can be hard to get your head around exactly where we are with all of it. I mean, take immunity. The British government are experts at being seemingly immune to all criticism, facts, accountability, other opinions, international law or the possibility of saying sorry. But when it comes to Covid, the messages keep changing. They were very confident that we'd have a vaccine all sorted by the autumn. Oh, no, wait, it's autumn now. Sorry, just in time for Christmas then, so you can pop a dose in a stocking. Oh, no, sorry, it'll probably be next year now. Early next year, like, say, summer or autumn. Meanwhile, Russia seems certain they'll have a vaccine done by next week because nothing instills confidence like getting injected by something knocked up in two days in a lab based on a few tests on one of Putin's political opponents. The reality is vaccines take time. There's still a lot of research to be done on just how and if people can get immunity to the virus and evidence seems to be suggesting that getting it once doesn't mean that you won't get it again. With infection cases rising again in the UK, it's important to know just what the actual science is, especially as it's becoming clearer and clearer that the government's notion of following it is like someone on Twitter who does it just so they can contradict all your tweets with something they've just made up that they insist is far more important. This week I spoke to Professor Sheena Crookshank, an immunologist, a professor in biomedical sciences and public engagement at the University of Manchester. 
Sheena has won several awards for her work and research and appeared many times on TV, radio and, in the past few months, the Cosmic Shambles broadcasts. So, with her skill at helping unscientific people like me to clearly understand immunology, I thought it would be great to ask her just where we are now in understanding COVID, what the actual timescale of a vaccine might be, and if any of us will ever be immune to it, or if I'll just have to go to the shops in a Zorb ball from now on. Sheena very kindly explained all, while her dog Freddy occasionally interrupted by squeaking a small toy pig. Uh, And I'll be honest, a more professional podcast probably would have edited uh, Freddy's squeaky pig endeavours out. But honestly, I thought it was just nice hearing at least one creature on the planet having a good time for once. Good for you, Freddy. Good for you. Anyway, I hope you find this chat with Sheena as useful and educational as I did. Here she is. Hi, Sheena. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, I think probably the first question I should ask you, uh, because I saw on your Twitter feed uh, something you mentioned the other day, um, but just how are you? Because you caught COVID, I think, all the way back in March, was it? And, uh, you know, how how are you now? Are you having any of the kind of long COVID issues? And I'm quite interested, considering what you do as an immunologist, did getting it help you understand what it does uh, a bit clearer? Thank you for asking. Um, I'm I'm fine now, thank you. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience having having COVID. Obviously, I was unable to confirm I had COVID because at the time, unless you went to hospital, you couldn't get a test, which is uh, frustrating. Uh, it was it was frightening. I think the the biggest thing was it was just really quite frightening. We knew relatively little about COVID at the time. And the immunology was was emerging. We were seeing a lot of very frightening statistics and facts coming out, um, and that that kind of concerned me a lot. And and although you know, I always end up you sort of envision what's going on. You know, when your glands are up and you've got the aches, you know that you know your your um, your lymphocytes, your white blood cells are trafficking around. They're trying to do stuff. You know they're making cytokines, which everybody is aware of now because we've heard about cytokine storms. So you're aware of all those things. It doesn't necessarily make you feel better. And I think you know there were the times when I was struggling to breathe and I, I was struggling to walk. That I've never been that sick. That really scared me and I just switched off the news everything but I was also trying to shield my children from how frightened I was we were terrified that we'd infected my in-laws because we'd seen them before lockdown we you know we're still can work out when I might have caught it or when I was infectious so yeah but the symptoms definitely loitered a while um I don't think I haven't got long COVID but months afterwards still breathless and you kind of get this sort of picture I have these images in my head of just just what my lungs might have been looking at but I'm hopeful they'll repair I certainly appreciate being well now a lot good good I'm glad I'm glad you're much better it's also interesting probably something for another longer conversation but the the anxiety I know people that were almost sick with anxiety about it uh they hadn't got COVID but they were just feeling awful because of the fear of it because I think everything was so scary about it at the time yeah and, and just worried I was you know when my husband became sick apparently I lovingly coughed on him in my sleep <laughs> Uh, he came sick a few days later, you know, and and then I was really scared because obviously we knew men did worse than women, and I was doing pretty badly, and I was like, oh no. Um, so fortunately, I, I I was worse than him, so you know there is that. 
Yay. Sure. Lovely <laughs> that's that's romance right there. I know. Um, we share. <laughs> um so so what do we know about COVID now? Because obviously, as you said, back then, back in March, we knew very, very little. Um we are quite a few months into this now. Are are we closer to understanding it, understanding how it works? And one of the things that I, you know, at first, people were comforted by the idea of when you've got it, you're immune. And now lots of questions have been raised about whether or not you're immune for you're, you're immune after having it once, whether you're immune for very long, whether you're immune at all. Um, where are we in, in terms of knowledge now? Well, that's a lot of questions in one. So let, let's <laughs> let's try and uh, walk you walk you through it. I think um, as we've certainly learned a lot more about the immunology, it became very clear um quite early on that there was dysfunctional immune responses in individuals that were getting sick. Uh, So there are lots and lots of different white blood cells that work together to orchestrate an immune response. You have early reactors and these are there to try and limit the spread of an infection. And in particular, some of those seem to be real culprits that make you you sick. So one type of cell is called a a macrophage. So their job is normally to kind of gobble up germs and infected cells or make products that bring other cells to kind of help deal with the infection and repair. And they seem to be going wrong. They seem to be getting profoundly pro-inflammatory. And that is one of the the problems that was identified quite early on. Um, And now we are starting to understand more about some of the risk factors that make particular groups of people more vulnerable to infection. So, for example, we know that high levels of glucose that might be seen in people who are diabetic and haven't been controlling their diabetes or have obesity. Um, and they, the glucose seems to affect the virus. It seems to enable the virus to kind of replicate more effectively in the host and perhaps even replicate in cells it wouldn't normally get into. And then that is a way that it can kind of get around and hide because it can get in some of the immune cells. It also seems to be affecting the ability of another part of your immune response, your of your white blood cells, the T cells, which are part of your memory response, really specific killing that ideally will remember a germ and deal with it the same way later, but more efficiently, much more rapidly. So in diabetic people, it seems that their ability to kill the T cell killing is much declined. So that's another thing that we're learning about. We know that there's differences with older people. Older people have a propensity, some, because of a phenomenon called inflammaging, um, to have more reactive macrophages. Uh, so those, those cells again, I mean, macrophages are usually very good cells. <laughs> Let's just say that. I know they're sounding like they're awful. Uh, and they have a lot of them tend to have a tendency to have fewer of those T cells, those lymphocytes that are really important at specifically killing and remembering. So they perhaps also won't make as many antibodies, which are made by B cells and other lymphocyte type. And men and women respond differently because we know men are more susceptible. We already talked about that. So men seem to have higher levels of the receptor that the 
the virus uses to get into the cells. They, they've got also got a little enzyme that actually helps the virus get into cells. So that's a oh. bit of a double whammy. So not only have you got more of the kind of gateways, you're opening the gateways wide and going, come in, <laughs> come and see me. And they have, again, have a tendency to have a different type of immune response to a woman. They tend to have be sort of going down that more pro-inflammatory reactive pathway, whereas the females, the women, we tend to have a more T-cell kind of efficient killing pathway. So yay, women, but unfortunate for, for men. So I think we are learning a lot and we're also starting to understand why children seem to be less vulnerable. There's all sorts of things emerging. We know that they um, they have less of the, the receptor that the virus needs. Um, there's some suggestion that there might be some protection from other upper respiratory infections that they might have had. And they seem to have less reactive pro-inflammatory responses. And they seem to also generate an immune response that's generally protective. Different types of white blood cells seem to be helping protect them. So all of this is giving us really, really helpful clues about why people get sick, why people don't get sick, which helps inform therapies, trials, everything. So it's good. It's good. And I haven't even talked about vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, well, before we get to that, uh, I mean, for a start, it's such a shame we can't trust macrophages anymore. I mean, back in the day, we used to be able we to trust them all the time. We love macrophages. Macrophages, now they're letting us down. What are they doing? Um, the, so I've got a few questions before we move on. Um, I mean, for a start, I'm, I'm male and a type 1 diabetic, so I might just hide for the rest of the day. Um, which is, yeah, well, but my, well, partly my understanding was that type 2s have a bigger issue because they can't control their Yeah, it's about the glucose the levels. And obviously type twos also tend to be older. So then you have that factor coming in. Um, but when it comes to children, are, you know, th- that's fascinating about the way in which their body deals with it. But does that change how they might spread it? Now, that's a different factor. <laughs> because, <laughs> And I think studies there are, are still emerging, but it does look like potentially, yes, children can catch it. And yes, if you can catch it, you can potentially spread it. And, you know, what is clear is that asymptomatic people, those lucky souls who don't get any symptoms at all, also can act as spreaders. So that's why it's so important to know who is is asymptomatic. So, yes, I think I think it, it does look like that even if you don't get sick, you can still spread infection. You might not spread it for as long or you might not end up being a super spreader. Who knows? But uh, you probably can still spread it. So when uh, sort of it was announced that children would be safe at schools, it's highly likely they will be, but the issue is always that they may carry it home. Yeah, that's been a concern and that's been raised and that's why schools hmm. are looking at different, different steps to try and mitigate that and, you know, teachers shielding themselves from because it's really the teachers that need to protect the pupils, but also to protect themselves. So that is being that is being monitored, and sure, as it should yeah. be. Or children-only schools is also a possibility. I think they'd love that. They'd have a great time. Um, I um, so very as, as sort of mentioned before. Then we, uh, in terms of immunity, because there were there were certain studies or certain articles, I should say. I don't think they're official studies that were saying that you're immune only for a few months and then you seem to not be immune anymore. Is that does that continue to be the case? 
Well, we don't know still because this is a new virus. We, we have to learn um, what it is. So the case, um, so it, it's part of this beta coronavirus family, which tend to, we tend to have come from animals, bats in particular. And there are a few of the beta coronaviruses that are what we call endemic. They're common in a population. Just out of curiosity, can you hear my dog behind I, me? I can hear your dog, but I, I think it's great background noise. So it's, uh, I, I'll, I'll leave him in. <laughs> He's playing with a small squeezy pig, grunting, okay. making it grunt. <laughs> and I, I can hear hear him in the background he's very relaxed he's splodged out on the rug but i am <laughs> there's a gentle grunting behind me what's um what's your dog's name his name is freddy he's a he's a miniature labradoodle and he's a year old oh that's lovely well that's all right as long as the listeners can just know that freddy's freddy's a guesting on the show as well freddy is guesting <laughs> on the show and and gently <laughs> oinking behind <laughs> <me>. <laughs> wonderful oh sorry um it, it kind of kind of i don't know does it add some value to the fact that we're talking about all the serious science but there's something oinking behind me yeah i think that's 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 lovely isn't it we know that okay that, yeah <laughs> that dogs are still having a great time i think that's oh he's loving it he's absolutely loving it um so what were we saying again <laughs> Uh, immunity, the, uh, immunity. immunity yeah. So some of the, the beta coronaviruses are already what we call endemic uh, in our population. That means they're very common. And, and so these are some of the viruses that contribute to the, the plethora of viruses that can cause the common cold. So we've got a few of those that circulate around and it seems that immunity to them is relatively short-lived. They think it's around three months. So you don't have a kind of long-term immunity you may have a partial immunity uh, with SARS which is another beta coronavirus they think immunity lasted a bit longer about a year now what we know about COVID is it's caused by SARS-CoV-2 which seems to be by and large what we're seeing structurally etc seems to be more similar to SARS so hopefully that does mean that immunity will be a little bit more durable uh, but we still have to to find out. But I guess what this means in terms of people who've been exposed before or people who get vaccinated, if we get a, a successful vaccine, is that it might not give them a complete immunity, but it might make them partially immune. So they either won't get sick, they'll have them, or, or they'll have just a very mild infection, which is much, much better than in terms of the kind of risks and side effects that are associated with severe COVID. So I don't know yeah, if absolutely. that fully answers, but you know, we just have to watch the space, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just sort of interesting as well in that uh, I know, obviously, it was highly criticised at the time and hasn't been thankfully discussed since, but the whole herd immunity idea which I mean, for, for the listeners, Sheila just rolled her eyes massively. Um, but I, that I guess that can't, regardless of the horrifying side of it, and that just letting people die, the um, it can't be a thing if if you're not immune for very long. Well, and and it's not worked well in Sweden. Have tried that, and uh, it doesn't seem to have worked very well. Uh, and I, I believe word on the street is I read something today that suggested that this is now being talked about in the States and they have got a proponent, one of the new uh, advisors in the, the States for, for President Trump 
is quite a proponent of this idea of herd immunity. So we're hearing all sorts of misinformation as well about, uh, you know, whether or not 20% will be enough to, to achieve herd immunity. And there is really no evidence for that at the moment. So yeah, herd, herd immunity uh, by getting naturally sick is all very well when it's a very mild infection, but it really is not a good idea when it's a new infection. We don't know what it does, and it obviously has had appalling consequences. It's not something that we want to see, in my opinion. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with Sheena in a minute, but first... Now, look, I know you're hearing about the Rona from this week's guest. And to be honest, the only way I want to hear more about that sort of thing is if I do something on this podcast that finally goes viral. But there's no point in doing a Brexit fallout this week if the internal market bill could all be changed by the time you hear this. So instead, to make sure you don't get snitched on by one of Kit Malthouse's family of rats, then here's what you can and can't do as helpfully explained by me, someone who can count to six and has done it more than a few times. As of today, when I'm recording this, or yesterday, if it's tomorrow, or the beginning of the week, okay, you get what I mean, it's now illegal to gather indoors or outdoors in a group of more than six people in England. Or in Scotland and Wales, you can have up to six adults and as many children under 12 that you can gather. I mean, why not dress as the Pied Piper of Hamelin and see how many it takes dancing after you before the authorities get upset? No, actually, that sounds quite creepy. Leave the children alone. Please, please leave them alone. Any breaches of that rule can result in police or perhaps panto horse suit wearing COVID marshals giving you an on-the-spot fine of £100. However, under-18s can't be fined, so if you do get caught, then just blame it on the kids and you should be okay. So that's the bit you do know, and with COVID cases ramping up, that does make sense, and you probably already regretted not being part of a jazz sex debt just so you had an easy out for any family or social gathering offers. But the thing is, there are five pages of exceptions to all these rules, all of which were published just 15 minutes before the policy took effect, and some of the wording to the main parts is a bit, well, odd. I mean, for a start, it's now illegal to mingle in the pub, but legal experts say that's a tad unclear, isn't it? I mean, mingling usually means seeing someone you know and heading over to say hello. But does that mean it's perfectly legal to wander around your local, telling people you don't like to fuck off? 
How much chat is a chat? What if you see a friend pop over and shout a string of nonsensical words at them? Shoes, polar bears, giblets. Police will have to use their discretion. So maybe if you find yourself excited by unexpectedly seeing pals, then make sure your chat is abrupt and boring and you should escape any sort of fee. Though if you do get a fine, it's non-appealable and by refusing to pay them, you can get a criminal record. Can you imagine going to prison having to own up to other inmates that you're in there because you ran up to tell Claire that you've still got a scarf? There are exceptions where you can have more than six people, uh, which include work, because as we all know, the sphere of capitalist greed will ward off all and any viruses, even if you just take an extended loo break after playing on the internet all morning wishing you were anywhere else. Education is also exempt because we know kids are safe at schools too, apart from all the ones where there have been outbreaks. Obviously, there are sensible ones, such as if you're providing care for a vulnerable person and, you know, they're having a house party. Uh, For existing arrangements where children don't live with both their parents or for emergency assistance or for weddings, funerals, religious ceremonies and not kids parties. Those last ones come under the heading of significant event gathering, which could be a significant milestone in a person's life, according to their religion or belief. But it doesn't include birthday parties, even if it's a really big one. Though I suppose you could have a surprise one, and then when everyone leaps out, as long as you didn't mingle with them, it might be okay. People can go hunting or shooting in groups of more than six, but they can't play informal football or any sports poor people play with friends, because that might mean they have fun, and as we all know, the only real therapeutic fun that's allowed is killing anything vulnerable. Organised sports are allowed though, but just be careful, make sure you dress in tweed and carry a shotgun when you're kicking the ball about. If nothing else, it'll intimidate the other team and should lead to an easy victory. Christmas with more than six people won't be allowed if the rules are still in place, unless, of course, if you dress in tweed and carry a gun. Maybe let a few grouse run wild around the living room, and if nothing else, it'll entertain the kids for a while. And it'll be fun in future years to talk about the one where Granny had to pull Buckshot out of the turkey. The rules in Wales still allow groups of up to 30 to meet, as long as it's outdoors and social distancing is in place, and obviously Carefully County Borough is still in full lockdown, so can't do anything. So, of course, they have to act really... Carefully. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. In Scotland, the rules are mostly the same as in England, apart from kids not counting, and only 20 people will be allowed to attend weddings or funerals and that sort of thing. But hey, at least that'll make the catering cheaper. If these rules of six keep carrying on, I doubt many of us will need that many people in attendance after this year anyway. In Northern Ireland, there's no real changes to the current rules, which are only 15 people outdoors and six people in private settings. So obviously, with COVID numbers like they are, you should be careful and stick to all these policies. But it is tricky when you know you could just catch it at the office, the classroom or all those funerals you keep sneaking into hoping for free canapes. It's also not easy to have full faith in any of this when, while Kit Malthouse wants everyone to go full East Germany, Lord Sumption from the Supreme Court has said that people should just use their own judgment and the law is a secondary consideration. Or when, you know, the government are quite happy to put us in an international situation where our only hope is that a Middle Eastern country decides they need to invade us in order to instil democracy. Back in June, the Prime Minister said the government would proceed on the basis of guidance and not criminal laws. And with police numbers still low, and the ones that are left probably not keen on spending their time working out who is and isn't mingling, this will probably, like everything the government has done, just undermine the authority of British law. All I can say is that I, for one, will be careful as always, and even more so when wearing my handwoven cap and stomping around with my fully loaded Winchester making grouse calling noises. At least that should keep people quite a social distance away from me. And now... Back to Sheena. Yeah, no, I mean, I fully agree. Uh, not something I'm particularly keen on either. Um, which, I mean, also calls into question that, that, that one of the things I mentioned to you before we started recording is I've seen lots of lots of criticism again has come up this week of maybe we should never have locked down and lockdowns killed more people. But if we can't have a sustainable immunity, I mean, you know, is, is there any other way out of this other than finding a vaccine eventually? I think there's... 
there's well I mean we might have we might have that kind of partial immunity I think lockdown was useful uh, oh you're getting a view of the, the dog there <laughs> I think lockdown was useful because what it helped was to start to bring the infectious you know number down so are they are not the kind of the sort of number of people who were who are getting infected by the virus because that that was getting out of hand and being able to get that down and get that a bit more manageable to help the NHS deal with things was absolutely crucial but what we needed to do more of in my opinion is use that time well Um, so we did ultimately scale up testing testing's crucial you need to be able to monitor where infections are happening, who's got infections, the type of events that are causing it. And that helps you sort of manage the infection, manage the treatments. I think as well, what we've we've learned a lot more is how to treat COVID. And that has a really, really important effect, being able to reduce the sort of magnitude of the disease so, for example, you know, we know things like dexamethasone, these corticosteroids can help reduce that horrible anti-inflammatory response. And um, I, I, I definitely can't pronounce the drugs. I'm not even going to try, but one of the <laughs> immunotherapies that's uh, primarily going to be used in the States because they bought all the stocks uh, can lessen the duration of the, of the disease. So, you know, learning about the disease, learning about the immune response means that, you know, when people get sick, we can help manage it. It better, but I do think the lockdowns were useful. We could have used the time better, in my opinion, just to be more ready. And a track and trace is critical. You've got to track and trace. But what we need to be doing is masking up. We need to be being sensible about the things that we do, and that's sometimes happening, but sometimes not. I I very much want to ask you about all the misinformation. And but before we get to that, just uh, obviously this week we've had the big headline news story of oh the vaccine trials being paused this is horrendous and one of the things you said to me in your email was it's quite normal for vaccine trials to get paused so I mean is uh if, if you tell me a little bit about that I mean, I'm guessing it's not that big a deal that they've had to stop it and think about what it does yeah I mean uh, the, the way that you do a vaccine trial a good vaccine trial it goes through many many different phases so you have your preclinical phases where you know you're kind of looking for targets you kind of look and see if you can get some kind of response and before you move into kind of human studies uh, so phase one is looking at safety does it work does it induce any side effects you'll do that in maybe 20 to 100 people phase two you'll be looking at several hundred plus people and again what are the most common side effects are we getting a measurable immune response phase three is expanding even more is it safe what is it working um what are the the side effects so when you are looking at several thousand people all at the same time in a randomized blinded trial inevitably some people might get sick as and it might be a complete coincidence it might have nothing to do with the vaccine but you pause you check, you investigate the source of whatever's caused it with that person. You also will have to on blind to find out whether they actually got the vaccine or a placebo. 
because we don't actually know if they've got the vaccine at the moment. Um, and then once you've established how serious this thing is, whether or not it was caused by the vaccine, you will make the, the, the decision to continue the trial. That is a normal procedure. That is the sign of good quality science and people taking it very, very seriously and going through all the good checks and balances. Even when you, you sort of phase up and you're, you're, you know, you're looking at um, a vaccine in the phase four when it's actually being manufactured and it's out there, you still keep monitoring it. That's why we still call it phase four. So all these things are happening and, you know, phase three is also checking how effective it is with people who are sick. You know, so it's preventing, it's checking, preventing infection. So the Oxford vaccines testing something like, I think at the moment they've got around 17,000, but I think they're looking to get around 30,000. So to get people not being sick when they get a vaccine, you know, that, that it, it's inevitable, but it might not be the vaccine. But remember, vaccines are powerful things. They're trying to induce an immune response. So it can make you feel a bit grotty if you're having a particularly powerful immune response. But that might not be a bad thing. It might be a good thing. So it's yeah, lots to lots to look at. It's a good, good thing. And it reassures me that they're doing due process. So let's just keep watching the space and find out. Yeah, because I think originally, uh, you know, sort of Matt Hancock and various others all promised, oh, I'll be vaccinated by Christmas. And it, it sort of it sounds a bit worrying if, if they're just rushing it out that quickly. I think, I, I don't know if I, I, and I don't want to remotely get, pretend I'm anywhere near an anti-vaxxer, God no, but the, the idea of going, I'm not sure if I want to have that when you've spent three weeks on it or something. There's a little bit worrying about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is my biggest concern with this this whole thing we're doing we're doing science live we are kind of reacting and i really am concerned about politicization of science and medicine because this is people's health this is long-term you know implications of what we're talking about and it, it really terrifies me i'm reassured by what we're doing here in the uk with our vaccine and and the steps that we're taking and i know other researchers across the across the world are doing all due process and being careful the reason they're able to to just kind of work so quickly is because china gave us the you know release the genetic code very quickly for the virus which enabled people to start looking people are working on these virus platforms you know the vaccine platforms so they had technology ready and then they and they've been working on similar viruses so again they had technology ready so they were able to adapt it so that's why we've been able to be a little bit quicker than we'd normally be but i think the fact that we're seeing um in russia such a, a big rush with that vaccine candidate it's you know the results were published on monday i think or at the weekend and they've only tested it in about 20 30 people at, at phase wow. one phase two before they're, they're they're sort of licensing it and putting it out so they're essentially for performing their phase three out in the community that that's hugely worrying i mean oxford by phase two had already done done over a thousand people to uh, testing and, you know, the levels of, of, of sort of immune responses they were seeing, they were seeing good antibody, which is a good marker that you're getting a reaction, but they were getting really poor kind of sort of effector antibody responses. So you have to test whether your antibody's doing anything. 
And although some of the people that they tested, their antibody looked like it was doing something, it was able to block a virus getting into a cell, some people didn't look like that was happening at all. And their, their T cell responses, those other really useful markers and that are good at killing virus, that those levels were pretty variable and, or low or non-existent in, in, the, in that, that data that was released uh, in that new paper. And that's worrying. And, and I'm hearing, you know, in America that, you know, President Trump is very adamant that the vaccine should be ready to go out for the um, election. And again, not giving people enough time to do due process like we're seeing at the moment is it's just wrong. And it could jeopardize the whole future of vaccines, really could. It could jeopardize so many things. It's, ah, it really it upsets me, <laughs> it really upsets yeah, me. Yeah, no, I can say it. I mean, I, I fully understand <laughs> it. It must, be, it must be so awful that, you know, what you're working on, what everyone's working on is to stop people being ill, to stop people dying. It's, it, it can't be, you, you couldn't have any more humanity to what you're doing. <laughs> and yet sort of politics is uh, frustrating that. That must be really upsetting i mean you know it mentioned trump and he at one point said people should inject bleach or whatever it was to tackle it um but how i mean you know uh just how difficult has this made it all but also how difficult has like online misinformation made tackling this virus has that actively because obviously we see posts and we see people saying oh wearing a mask is a hoax or whatever but has that actively frustrated the work that immunologists and virologists like you know yourself are, do are doing I don't know if it frustrates our work, but it it's it I, perhaps frustrates efforts to try and work together as a sort of a larger community, including the public, to help tackle a problem that we all need to be taking steps to to measure. So it won't affect the kind of research that that, that you know my lab does personally, but it has an impact on people. So when um, you know Pete, Donald Trump said the comments he, he made about hydroxychloroquine uh, people died because people injected themselves with it um and people were were using bleach in inappropriate ways um i don't think they injected themselves with it but i i do believe that that people have been using bleach in inappropriate ways um i think ignoring um evidence-based medicine so you know really pushing hydroxychloroquine so hard when there was no evidence to show that it was effective had a had a big effect because people were were trusting it people were buying in large stocks of it and now this is a drug that's important for treatment of other conditions such as lupus it was endangering supplies for other patients so it was endangering their well-being their lives and it didn't it didn't work and it should all go through kind of proper randomized trials to check that a drug works and again we're seeing it again with the the plasma trial he's he, they pushed it to to sort of say yes you can use recovered plasma it might work but we don't know if it works again again the evidence doesn't exist for it to work and that really yeah that, that that's frustrating and sort of seeing the misinformation circulating it doesn't help when senior leaders that people trust kind of propagate that and expand that and 
and the kind of ways that the misinformation works. But I think it's very difficult to tackle tackle it on a personal level. What you mustn't do is just go, rah, you're wrong, which is really tempting to do. It's trying to understand what the reasons for that people are trusting that and trying to sort of come at it more neutrally. Because the minute you, you start going, no, you're wrong, people just shut down. So it's, it's trying to build that rapport. And I think what this really, really highlights is how important it is that researchers keep talking with people, with the public all the time to keep explaining our work, keep explaining the scientific process and being open and transparent so it doesn't end up feeling like this horrible ivory tower business where we kind of get locked away and I, I would hope that if nothing else there is hopefully going to be more of that more people will feel that they can get involved with those conversations and ask questions and not feel that it's wrong to ask questions I hope and this might be a sort of it is a slightly silly question because obviously you've mentioned that that many things already are important and do work and wearing masks is important and but we've had a, a funny week where we've been told that now social gatherings can't be more than six, but at the same time, go to work and eat in restaurants and go to school and mix with many, you know, larger groups of people. So what should we all be doing? And, and I mean, I say this, I, I'm very aware in my area, more people seem to be just being sensible rather than paying attention to every government message. They seem to be wearing masks on transport and in shops and you know, keeping distance. Um, but what should we, should we just be doing all of the kind of basic advice, but more, are there other things that from a kind of uh, immunity point of view, we should be doing? What's, what's the advice now? I, I think wearing a mask, you know, trying to follow good, good practice, social distancing, uh, you know, washing your hands, etc. Those all work, trying to reduce your likelihood of risk so considering you know what are the 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 higher higher risk things that you do and do you need to do them um i think these are questions we can all ask ourselves i think if we're unhappy about what's happening locally then really we should be writing to our mps we should be writing to the councils and questioning questioning things i think there is a lot of power in people saying i'm i'm not sure that this 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 is right um, so I think that's the sort of things that you can do. I agree some of the, the, the advice that's coming out from the government is not always clear and it's not always obviously consistent. I guess they're trying to balance that, that business of trying to, to live a life, keep going on with some safety and they are also very bothered about the economy. And, and that also is important, I guess, to, to people because people need to earn money to live. Um, so I don't want to sound glib about that. So I think it, it's, it's a balancing act. I don't always agree with what they say personally, but then the way that you can do that is, is take your concerns. And that's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I still, I still fairly, there was a, we're speaking the day after Boris Johnson did a press briefing and I still barely listen to anything he says and then wait for Chris Whitty to speak and look how terrified he looks. Goes, oh yeah, that's probably, probably what we should be paying attention to. Yeah, it doesn't help when we've got, we've got very flippant, uh, changeable. It's <laughs> <laughs> very diplomatic of you. Yeah, and rules for one and not for everybody. <clears throat> Cummings effect. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I can imagine none of that. We, we've in our local area, we've had uh, I won't name the council, uh, although all the listeners know where it is. Um, but we've had very you know good measures everywhere. But they've uh, also just announced a fun fair uh, that's happening in our local park uh, that's supposedly COVID safe. But yeah, I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure. That's the message. Well, at the same time, all the GPs are messaging everyone going, don't go outside because there's a rise. Um, so it's it's fascinating, um, you know, the, the messages that we're being given as to what to do. Uh, don't go outside, but do go on the waltzes a little bit. I'm sure if someone coughs on one, it won't spin around as you as you go by. Um, so anyway, thank you so much, Sheena. It's been so useful and, and just so good to get clear information, I think, as I said it, a lot of people being very sensible, but th- these messages can be quite mixed. Um, and one of the things you said about getting information out there um, is, apart from yourself and uh, your Twitter and all your work and your articles, who do you follow for very clear, just clear information for, for easily digestible information? Who should listeners check out and, and read up on if they want proper scientific advice about? Yeah, um I think um, as, a, as a writer, I think Ed Young has been writing some fantastic pieces in The Atlantic, and they're all free access because they're about COVID. He's very good at condensing a lot of, of the science, it, although it is a bit more US focused. I've been really impressed with some of the, the media that have been getting in touch with me and asking me questions uh, places like the scientists are putting good things out um, science does and again anything covid related is open access um, the conversation is very useful it's that's that's a good place um, and yeah i think so there's a there's a good few places and some good researchers to follow on on twitter um, and I, I can't remember everybody's name at the moment but there are definitely some some good trusted ones you'll they'll probably be the ones that you'll see quoted in all of these places that i've mentioned uh, the most because they're they're good trusted sources the british society for immunology in the uk also puts out some very helpful useful press releases and they have a an advisory group um, that look at covid immunology and policy so they're another really good source and I, I very much am part of that group and contribute to that group so um, there, there's some names for you in some places Thanks to Sheena for her time and you can follow her on Twitter at SheenCR and she regularly has articles and pieces in publications such as The Conversation so do check them out. Um, thank you also massively to Robin Ince, the brilliant comedian, writer and all-round lovely man who put me in touch with Sheena and uh, she often appears on Robin's Cosmic Shambles Network that has been putting out a lot of pretty astounding comedy and science content among others uh, since the pandemic kicked off so do check that out at CosmicShambles.com. So uh, I'm trying to get a US politics commentator on to talk about that current trash fire of a place, but I'm worried that that chat will have to be several years long to fit everything in. Uh, I'm also trying to get behavioural psychologist, uh, depending on the next few weeks, a Brexit update and selfishly someone to chat about left and right wing comedy too. Sounds interesting. Uh, If so, or if no, then who else shall I talk to? All suggestions are welcomed, even if they aren't always invited in for a cuppa after. You can do that suggesting at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could deliver it in a powerful, informative dance piece with the aim of educating all who see it, only for some idiots to instantly complain because they don't want to learn things or become better people. They just want to dribble at the telly, wrapping themselves in a union flag for comfort and saying something derogatory to the delivery driver that brings them very British pizza. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. And of course, right here at the end of all things, sorry, uh, the podcast, it is time to embellish your life with a small burst of parpole bro hot pole goss fact. And this week, with the government wanting to break international law just to own the libs, what has been the biggest international relations blunder of all time? Obviously, there are a ton of contenders for this prize, including the previously mentioned on this episode, Iraq War, which is yet another example of pointless destruction by America and Britain based on some sort of hallucination they had. Imagine destroying a nation because they might have had magical weapons you made up. Ugh. But the winner of this week's fact, just so you don't eye-roll your way off the end of the show, thinking about time after time that the Western powers have screamed they're coming to the rescue of people who don't really need it, like a younger sibling charging in to save the day by knocking over the tower you spent ages building and then falling into your games console and breaking it. The winner is from much further into the past, aka the Emperor of Khwarezm in the early 13th century. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, Allah ad-Din Muhammad II, who ruled the Khwarezmian dynasty, which uh, covered large parts of what we now know as Central Asia. Afghanistan and Iran until he began executing Mongol travellers along the Silk Road and refused to apologise to everyone's dad Genghis Khan. Khan tried to remain diplomatic by sending three ambassadors who are probably also his kids everyone is uh, to meet the emperor and he made them wait for weeks to see them and then he had their beards set on fire and beheaded the lead one which is definitely the opposite of hospitable I mean that is levels even Pretty Patel would struggle to get that far. Um, old Genghis was pretty pissed by this and responded by sending 300,000 Mongol horsemen and wiping out the entire Khwarezmid uh, Empire in one go. So uh, while Johnson may be attempting to emulate Khan by shagging everything that moves, he'd be better off looking at how the Khwarezmid Empire disappeared and taking notes on how unnecessary hostility isn't always the best defence. Uh, though to be fair, the EU wouldn't be able to send in 300,000 horses as they'd all just get stuck at the Dover port for days on end, wouldn't they? Uh, that's this week's Parpol Bro Hot Pole Goss Fact. I hope you enjoyed it or hated it so much that it's invigorated you to make the world such a better place that I won't have anything to joke about anymore and this whole podcast will be dire observations about sports cap water bottles or how dogs sigh or something. Either way, please recommend it to all who you know, give the show a nice five-star review on the podcast apps you use, and heartily fling some money my way at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or the ACAST supporter button for this show. Thanks tons to ACAST, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day, Katie Coxell, and this week, new addition to the team of Helping Hands, Scott Napier, who's offered to do clever subtitle work for short video clips of this show that I will uh, hopefully be putting up on social media. Thank you, Scott. Uh, welcome to occasionally having your name shouted at the end of the show, whenever I remember. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, this will be back next week when Boris Johnson gets himself arrested for holding up a teller at gunpoint while screaming, no Prime Minister would ever rob a bank and just assuming it'll work. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Everyday Hunts. Wanting to hang out with upwards of six pals but flummoxed by COVID rules? Perhaps that kid's party needs to happen or little Boswell will ball his eyes off. Well, with our box containing a tweed-coloured spray, two soft toy foxhounds and three real massive guns, you can turn any event into a perfectly legal hunting troop. Police won't be slapping a fine on you as Boswell fires shots at his grouse-shaped fifth birthday cake this year and all his friends have to cover their ears and eyes and won't stop crying. Why not hit those pints with 29 mates before doing shots too, but actual ones while drunk and in the park? It's perfectly safe. Our guidebook will give you all the best tough shouts such as tally-ho or get the one in the tracksuit. Everyday hunts, so you too can be one of society's real hunts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.